Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Dr. Kalinda Lee is an award-winning curator, writer, and educator with 25 years of experience, most recently at the Atlanta History Center. Now, she heads the programs and exhibitions for the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. Later this hour, we'll hear her hopes and vision for her newly created position. You may have heard that one of Atlanta's foremost talents is heading to Chicago. John Carr, the executive director of Dad's Garage, has been named executive producer for the famous Second City Ensembles. But he's still in Atlanta for the holidays and determined to make us laugh through this season. In addition to the end of this pandemic, if there's anything we all could use, it is a good dose of laughter. Our friends at Dad's Garage are most reliable in that regard, and now they've teamed up with the Alliance Theatre for Laugh Track. John Carr is the artistic director of Dad's Garage. He joins us now via Zoom with longtime Dad's improviser and grand dame Gina Rikiki. Welcome back to City Lights. Hello, thanks for having us. Yes, thank you so much. As you well know, I adore you and worship you and I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, back at you, back at you. John, how did Dads and the Alliance come together for Laugh Track? Well, it was a great situation just because, you know, as many theaters have done, we're all transferring over to online content and um, the Alliance has a wonderful new platform that's the alliance anywhere and it's uh, a super great one and so they wanted to do a comedy show and so they're like rather than reinvent the wheel they reached out to us and asked us if we wanted to participate in it and we said absolutely so we put together this fun show for them and uh, so far it's been just a blast putting it together okay that's a very modest way of saying when they thought of 
humor, they turn to us. <laughs> well, that is, that is a much more direct way of putting it. <laughs> now, would you talk about what inspired the short video format that Laugh Track has adopted? Yeah, I have to, I, I'd love to take credit for the idea, but it actually was Karen Cassidy. She has been doing some short form comedy videos on TikTok and just has nearly a million followers right now. And it's really amazing. And so when we were talking to the Alliance about what we wanted to do, traditionally we thought of like a sketch show that you see like a Saturday Night Live or a Key and Peele or something like that. But with it being kind of online content, we wanted to do something a little bit different. So we kind of took the format the way that Karen made her short form TikTok videos. And so we've got about four other actors, including Gina, and they're all making their own sketches at home. And it's very quick, fast, funny sketches. So it allows us to do a whole lot in a very short period of time. And it's always fast paced and super interesting. And they just do an amazing job. I'm always amazed by what they can pull off just at their own homes and putting together sketches there. Well, there is that improv factor. Yes. <laughs> we're especially improvising like different places in our house so that it looks like we're in a million different locations. <laughs> yeah. Would you talk about that? You know, when we get together and we have our, we have monthly pitch sessions where, you know, they're the, let's say the episode is themed. So we're kind of pitching based on characters that we've created or we want to create and ideas that tie in with those characters. And so then once we all kind of brainstorm and figure out the best comedy angles, then it's up to us individually to film them at home or at other places away from other people. <laughs> so I have to try to make sure that the kitchen angle I use for one character is not the same kitchen angle that I use for another character. So it doesn't look like they live in the same house. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm running out of space because my house, is, my house isn't that big. But it's, it's been a, another super fun challenge to figure out how you can take what you have or uh, you know, we also were very lucky in the sense that if we need something specific and it's in stock at dad's garage, like costume or wig or something like that, uh, that we're able to, as long as we give enough advance notice, kind of say, hey, can I have X, Y, or Z? And uh, they'll help us kind of fill out uh, what we have to play with. But it's very improvisational. You look around your house and you say, ah, I can use that corner. <laughs> Well, you mentioned you have to make sure characters are in different rooms. I've heard that two of your better-known characters will make an appearance, Mitch and your drunk aunt. Yes. I understand your drunk aunt ran for president this year. Is she part of the recount? She ran on the party party ticket. And... <laughs> She still has not conceded, but I'm also not entirely sure that she understands that people have voted yet. Because when she goes on a bender, she goes on a bender. But yeah, she's, uh, I've gotten to do a little bit of drunk aunt and then Mitch is kind of my um, hard scrabble kind of trucker character uh, who is uh, always sitting at a bar and bemoaning his inability to catch the eye of pretty ladies especially during the pandemic. What, um, what is Mitch's origin story, Gina? 
Well, I very much like to play with makeup just on my own, just to kind of try to find different characters. And so Mitch came out of one night, I was sitting in my apartment and I was like, I haven't done a really good dude look. So let me make this dude. And unfortunately, when I look like a dude, I look like somebody who will steal your wallet. Um, <laughs> and it's just the way it is. And I've accepted it. And so I, I built a character around the fact that he's kind of a sleaze bag, but he has a heart of gold as well. So I, I always want them to have some level of redemption in them so that they're not all bad. They're just super flawed. I think that sleaze bag with a heart of gold deserves to be a book blurb. Some, you know, <laughs> you should have a biography of Mitch and that should be on the cover. Oh, if only I had time on my hands. Wait. <laughs> John, you've described the next episode as a funny take on family and the holiday. <laughs> Oh, would you give us a glimpse of what we might see? I've actually heard there may be rapping <laughs> elves, rapping yeah. elves competing with one another. <laughs> that is very true. Yeah, it's um, it's great because, you know, each of the individual actors kind of have their own perspectives on different things and their own styles. And so it's great to like just take a simple idea like the holidays and then just let each of the individual actors kind of take their um their unique spin on it and you know gina has some new characters that i'm very excited about that she created for this as well as avery sharp who's one of our performers but is also has worked for the alliance for a while as well and so he uh decided to do some rapping elves that were battle rapping for uh the place of top elf in uh, Santa's village. So there's just a wider range of funny and bizarre and weird takes on this kind of a bizarre holiday that we're about to have. In the spirit of yes, and <laughs> have we made sure to mention all of the the other members performing in this show? Oh, yes. I was just about to say that. <laughs> we have uh, Jamila Porter, who is brilliant, and also Freddie Boyd. I think one of the wonderful things is that we all tell jokes differently, and it's really obvious in the way that we, we work on this. And I think that's all of us, right? And, um, and Karen Cassidy. And Karen. Ah, uh, yes. The ever-brilliant Karen Cassidy. With now nearly a million followers. Yes. Yeah. You have had a lot of experience streaming live content, Gina. Your weekly show, that award-winning Gina's Garbage Hour, is now, what, approaching its fourth year? Yeah, uh, we're like at three and a half years now, which is really weird to think of, that it all started from a failed yard sale. And thankfully, John, who was then marketing director, saw me go live from my failed yard sale and was like, hey, would you like to do something on Sundays? We were trying to figure out the streaming thing. And then uh, three years and countless donations and disposing of things uh, properly, people donate quote unquote garbage stuff that they were going to donate or get rid of. And I go through it live on air and been a lot of fun. It is so funny. What are some of the challenges 
and perhaps even advantages of creating sketch comedy during the age of Zoom and the pandemic. This is for both of you. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the big challenge is just having to rethink how you do any sort of video work, even any sort of sketch work, because it's such a collaborative process and you're used to having people that are doing cameras and lights and scripts and all these in one place. And it's such a different thing to just be essentially by yourself and in a room and try to create humor and laughter um, all by yourself. And I think one of the advantages though, is that with this show particularly, because everyone is kind of doing it themselves, you see their voices so much clearer. You see who they are through their work because it's just them. And for me, the joy is taking all these very different voices and putting them together into one show that creates sort of this sort of like overarching um, tapestry of different voices and perspectives that the only thing that make, they have in common is that they always make me laugh. <laughs> and thank goodness. Yes, that is what we need. Were there any restraints in terms of being on the Alliance website? Did you have to approach anything differently than if you were just your regular dad's family? Oh, for sure. I think in any comedy project, you're always thinking about your audience and what's going to resonate clearest and for the individual audience. So, you know, the dad's audience and the Alliance audience are definitely two different audiences. So the type of things that make our audience laugh is a little bit different than the Alliance, but it's also not that much different. We just kind of had to tweak a few things to make sure that, you know, it would be something that would be accessible to everyone. And uh, it's been nice too, because it's also forced us to flex our comedy muscles. And it's always fun doing comedy for your friends, but it's also great to have a new challenge and try something new. And I definitely believe that that's what this is. If you're used to playing a, a 10.30 show, a rowdy show, you know, obviously your content is going to be a little bit differently um, than if you're doing like an 8 p.m. scripted show or something like that. And I love kind of thinking of the Venn diagram of the people who regularly attend the Alliance and the people who regularly attend dads and where that overlap is and how we can kind of hit that sweet spot with our comedy so that we're not pandering and we're not censoring ourselves, but we're finding new ways to express our characters and have a really great time. Actor, improviser, and writer Gina Rikiki and Dad's Garage, artistic director John Carr. A new episode of Laugh Track premieres today. More information on how to view this series will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Later this week, John Carr will talk with us about leaving Dad's Garage to become the executive producer for that revered comedy institution, The Second City. You're listening to City Lights on WABE Atlanta. On November 19th, Dr. Kalinda Lee began her new position as head of programs and exhibitions 
at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. This is a new position created to focus on the Center's mission of exploring the fundamental rights of all human beings, inspiring and empowering people to use their reflections on the past to create equity and fairness in the present. Dr. Lee joins us now via Zoom. Kalinda Lee, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you for having me. It is always a pleasure, Lois. We are so excited for this new role for you for this new chapter in a very impressive career. You served as the chief historian for the Atlanta History Center since 2013. And during your time there, you brought more African-American stories, perspectives, and visitors to the museum. How will you expand upon that work in your new role? When I joined the Atlanta History Center in 2013, one of the things that I was really anxious to do and quickly was to ensure that the interpretation, that the stories that we were telling, um, that the history that we were sharing was more reflective of the people who in fact inhabit this space. So what does Metro Atlanta look like? What does the Southeastern region look like? Who's here? Who's been here? What stories not only reflect their history, but also their contemporary concerns? Sometimes uh, we encounter histories that may be in places that are quite remote or about people who feel quite remote, but there are things that resonate with us. There are universal human impulses and desires that kind of click. For example, human beings' desires for freedom, um, human beings' desires for self-efficacy, to make a difference in the world, to feel like their efforts and struggles matter. All of those things um, I wanted to see happen in that place. And it took some time, right? It was seven years of of kind of pushing and pulling and creating strategic partnerships and thinking well beyond the walls of the institution. That is very much what I would like to do at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. That's what's on our agenda. We want to be a voice for the city and region, certainly in terms of the civil and human rights struggles and triumphs that are located in and around this space and its story, but also to connect that to a broader history and broader contemporary concerns around what it looks like and feels like for people to yet continue to struggle to achieve all of their rights and to also work shoulder to shoulder with people who might not look like, feel like, come from the same places as them, but who they find common cause with and recognize that it's important to struggle on other folks' behalf as well. Hmm. So what will your duties entail in this new position? So what I will be doing 
at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights is really focusing on all things mission, right? So when we think about the mission, when we think about making sure that uh, the stories that we share from a museum perspective are accurate and feel relevant and are uh, stories with which people can find resonance that makes sense to them, that feel related to their experience, even if they're separated by thousands of miles and even hundreds of years. So that's one part of things. And also though, beyond the walls of the museum space that so many people associate with the institution, to help people come to understand this institution in a broader frame, we have a huge educational mission. And that mission extends to people who walk through the doors of the museum or who never do so. We have a huge mission around teaching people about civil and human rights and how to engage with them in an ethical and forward-thinking um, community progress-focused way. So for example, we have a law enforcement training institute where we work with members of law enforcement communities in order to teach them about unconscious bias and to help them understand ways that they can use the power that they have in service of communities rather than as antagonists in any way in communities. Those kinds of big picture connections between the past and the present and the way that that work comes together to help us to form a more equitable future that is the work that I will be leaning into um, at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. How do you train staff members or what kind of training do staff members at the museum undergo in order to help visitors know more about the exhibitions? Well, one thing that we are very conscious of is that Sometimes within our organizations, I bet people listening can identify with this, there may be people who have forward-facing jobs where they're very focused on um, explaining to visitors, clients, students, whatever the case may be, um, certain content. And then you have other people who have administrative roles of various sorts who might not be as deeply engaged. But when an organization works best, everybody really understands the big picture of the mission and why they're there pulling for this work together. So one of the things that we do a lot of is team building, empathy building, what it looks like to really understand not only in a big meta picture, but even within our institutions, the, the struggles and triumphs and goals of the people who we're working with every day. Um, that workforce looks like our community, right, in terms of diversity across race and gender and age and educational levels sometimes when it's uh, possible, all of those kinds of things. So that's one part of it. A huge part of doing this work is recognizing that, what's that saying, if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. Um, we have to be connected deeply and truly and really authentically connected with other institutions um, that do 
similar work that do parts of this work to be more collaborative and less competitive uh, in terms of making sure that everybody has access to the messages that we're trying to share. So for example, that might look like really close partnerships with the school systems, right? And that might also look like really close partnerships with members of the funding community so that school systems that can't afford those services that we're providing can nonetheless access the services that we're providing because our mission is to reach them all and to create of each child, uh, you know, the the potential to be a change maker, to be inspired by the people in the past and even contemporarily who are working towards equity and civil and human rights and see themselves in that. And so a big part of what uh, we have struggled to do and certainly that I intend to put my shoulder um, to the wheel on is making sure that we are making meaningful connections with various people across our community who can carry parts of the mission along with us. We also want to learn from those people, right, the people in our community, what they actually want and need. Sometimes we think that if we build it, they'll come. <laughs> we have great ideas that spring from the head of Zeus, so to speak, and we put it out there and then we wonder why folks aren't rushing to the door. And um, sometimes we've forgotten to talk with them, right? We have, we have gone and picked out a gift, but we have not asked the recipient of that gift what it is that is their heart's desire. And so we will be doing a lot of hopefully really intelligence building, right? Um, information building, work that we can share across the industry about what it is that people in this community feel like they need from institutions such as ours. And and would that entail going to neighborhood planning meetings? Uh, how do you go about engaging the community? To engage the community, there are a number of different things. I think the very first thing we have to do is think about even what we mean, right? So uh, when we talk about, I used to say that when we talk about the museum or the institution and the community, it's only when we're inside our kind of hollowed walls that we can peer out the window and say the community wants or the community thinks. Because as soon as you step outside of those walls and you're in the community, which is what we are every day, right? Because we live in the community, we realize it's certainly not one thing. Um, <laughs> there are so many interests and ideas and um, sometimes competing goals. And so part of what that means is very humbly reaching out to not only institutions that work within and on behalf of various community constituencies, but also thinking about community thought leaders. Sometimes they're people, you know, those people who have big ideas or have been doing important work in their communities. They may not have an organization. They might not have a big title. But they're community thought leaders. Um, they're people who understand well the workings of their community. Part of that is inviting those folks in and planning with them as collaborators, sometimes as co-curators, um, sometimes as program participants and leaders. Uh, so it's really an interesting opportunity to think about the institution, the National Center of Civil and Human Rights, is a space of expertise 
and passion and history for some of this work, certainly all of the work that's core to its mission. But the institution is also a student that can learn from other members of the community and organizations in the community. And we want to do that. We want to humbly learn from those institutions so that we can go far together. What can you tell us about the Center's new Truth and Transformation Project? The Truth and Transformation Project is very much in development. The idea is in some ways quite similar and maybe familiar to people when they think about truth and reconciliation projects that have taken place all over the world. But we've learned from those projects where they have been successful and also where they have failed, which only hindsight could show. And so we're thinking about how to make that kind of engagement more meaningful, more lasting. So let me tell you what that kind of engagement is. The idea is that people would come together, right? We will convene members of our community to focus on specific issues or perhaps in the beginning, a specific issue that is of grave concern. And one of the concerns that we know is burdensome and painful and ongoing is a history of racialized violence. That is to say that people have been targeted for violence because of their race and for no other reason than because of their race. And that has to stop. It has to stop in this country and it has to stop globally, but how do we make that so? We believe that one of the first things that has to happen is that we have to acknowledge it. That's the truth part, right? The conversations about how that has come to be, um, how people have been engaged in replicating that, sometimes very consciously, sometimes not so self-consciously. Um, and then the transformation portion of that is, so then what do we do with it, right? Then, then how do we move beyond just being reconciled to the notion that it happened, but that we need to move into a space of understanding how we change this. And that has been a very difficult conversation to have an effort to really champion. It might sound surprising, right? If you think about like, why wouldn't you wanna end racialized violence? Well, first of all, you have to talk about some things that are really ugly, right? Really hurtful that people, on the one hand might feel continually traumatized by, right? When I think about some of the things that I've heard about, even in my family's history of a somewhat distant relative who was a victim of racialized violence in the 1890s, mm. it's still painful. Of course. It's traumatic to revisit that, right? But understanding how that came to be, how that was justified, how some of the language around him as a black man being less than human, being different than other human beings, not having the capacity or the right to occupy spaces that white men would occupy to work. And those were the things that were part and parcel of the language of the time, of the behavior of the time that made him a target 
whether a racial epithet was used or not, those were the things that made him a target and they were based on his race. And then to think forward, well, are some of, some of that language still used? Are some of those characterizations still used? How do we identify them? How do we understand them for what they are? And then how do we change that so that we can be a more productive, more harmonious, more equitable, higher achieving society for everyone involved? That's the thread around truth and transformation, that we face the truths in trust and authenticity and rooted in historical knowledge, that we look at the current situation and that we plan together for a much better future. Glenda, is it fair to say that with this new position and thinking about the Truth and Transformation Project, that the center is moving from beyond the museum to the role of activist or advocating activism. The National Center for Civil and Human Rights is not an activist organization. It is a nonprofit organization with an educational mission. But embedded in that educational mission is the understanding that we hope to teach people about the past and even contemporary conversations, right, contemporary issues around civil and human rights to inspire them to find the change maker in themselves. So there is certainly a so what that's embedded in all of our gazing at the past in our ruminations about civil and human rights challenges and opportunities in the current reality. And that so what at an individual level is, so what could I do about this? So what could I do to inspire change, to make change, to be a part of positive change that creates a more equitable world for everyone. That doesn't look like a specific movement necessarily. So the center is not, for example, saying everybody should join this particular campaign or engage in activism or advocacy in this particular way. But we are saying that we are here to show you the past and to some extent the present in hopes that we will lift every voice and inspire you to go out into your other spaces and lift your voice in, in truly meaningful ways. Part of that work is about shifting us from a way of looking at people in the past. So say, for example, our civil rights icons as messianic characters, right? So I have tremendous respect for the elders and ancestors that came before us and did important, meaningful, frame-changing work. But we have a tendency to place them on these pedestals as if they weren't human beings. And when we do that, what we also are saying is that we don't have the capacity to do the kinds of things that they did because they were somehow magical and we are not. And a huge part of what the National Center for Civil and Human Rights wants people to realize, wants to help people to realize is that no, actually in your day-to-day -day walk, you have the capacity to make this kind of change that makes the world a better place. Dr. Kalinda Lee, 
the head of programs and exhibitions at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. We'll return with more of our conversation after a short break. You are listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with Kalinda Lee, who was recently appointed as head of programs and exhibitions at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. Here, Dr. Lee describes the various exhibitions on view at the museum. Oh, the center is a very exciting place to visit as a museum. As a curator, I'm just rubbing my hands together and can't <laughs> all the way in. What we have on display, and I'll just kind of move from floor to floor up the building. Uh, so what we have on display are one, the King Papers. So we partner with Morehouse College to display a portion of the King Papers. And that exhibition rotates. So um, when you come back from time to time, you see different letters, you see different photographs, you see different memorabilia. Uh, We also have a key kind of cornerstone exhibition that explores the civil rights movement. And when I say that, I mean, I'm thinking about this kind of what we call the short civil rights movement. So the thing that people most think about this movement in the 1950s and 1960s to achieve by law full citizenship for all Americans centered on the marginalization of African-Americans in that struggle. So you will see information and images and have interactives and have an opportunity to engage in some play and look at technology and hear sounds um, and and film from that movement, from the student sit-ins through the March on Washington, uh, the campaigns that uh, Dr. King led through his assassination, and into the notion of the work continuing beyond his life. And so that's a big section of what you see and experience, I think is the better word to say experience in the center because it really engages all of your senses. And then we have an exhibition, which I would also call a cornerstone, that focuses on human rights in a global context. What are human rights anyway? What work has been done and continues to be done to make sure that all people really have access to the 
the rights that they are innately born with? And who are some people who we need to kind of keep in mind as folks who have been advancing this cause? It also pushes us into a consideration, that exhibition of ways that human rights may be violated that we aren't even aware of and that we're certainly not aware that we're complicit in. So for example, there are some labor practices that are utilized to make uh, products that we use every day that actually are really forcing people into unfree labor right? A form of slave labor. And, you know, we participate, we're complicit because we don't know. And so that exhibition helps to open our eyes um, around that. We are excited that soon and very soon, for those who are listening who already know what we offer and are fans, we will be updating the exhibitions. We will be adding more exhibition space outside um, of the center and um, and hopefully even more beyond that. And as I said before, we are always looking outside of our building to think about ways that we can engage in programming, ways that we can engage in collaborative projects out in the community, broadly speaking, and ways that we can, especially in this moment, right, of the pandemic, and ways that we can make more and more of what we offer available digitally. Mm, Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the pandemic. How is the center preparing for this winter? Well, the truth about the pandemic, I think, is that none of us really know exactly what will happen next, right? But we do know that we have expertise from the CDC, from the World Health Organization and other sources that are laying out guidelines for us about what is safe efficacious behavior. And the National Center for Civil and Human Rights is committed to protecting our visitors, our constituents, human rights to health and safety, right? By following those protocols, even though, to be quite frank, economically, uh, it's stressful. So speaking to you in the fall of 2020, we are open to the public. We are mandating mask wearing and social distancing. We have hand sanitation devices throughout the institution. We are limiting the number of people who can be in the building at any given time. So we are doing everything that we can to make sure that people can come in and enjoy the experience or learn from the experience and be illuminated by the experience, but also that people are safe and that they are not put in any difficult situations where sometimes, you know, we're in those situations where we're being safe, but the institution isn't really mandating it. And so we're not quite sure how to proceed. If we encounter others, we're making sure that we all look after one another in the space. We are also doing a lot more work digitally. So we are engaging with our school partnerships, for example, digitally. We are putting more and more up on our website so that you can explore and learn without having to come into the building at all. 
And we will continue to do that kind of work. Our training institutes, for example, with the law enforcement training, that is all happening virtually right now. So what we've learned, and I think that lots of us have learned this in lots of different spaces, is that while not being able to come together physically in the ways that we were used to is challenging, it also has opened some doors and opportunities for us that we couldn't have imagined a year ago. So we host conversations with people in far-flung places now in ways that we weren't able to before. We are able to spread our mission and do educational work with institutions and people, uh, communities that are all over the world. So I would really encourage you to check all of that out as well, because it's, it's not just a pale approximation of what we used to do before. It's actually, you know, kind of a brave new world. I want to, that might not be the right way I want to say it right, but it's a great new world. It's an new world. And I think that there will be many lessons from this moment, certainly some difficult things, but also some really positive new lessons that we will cling to long after this moment has passed. Kalinda, you mentioned the curator in you being excited earlier in our conversation. One of your greatest achievements, something that I found just enlightening while you were at the Atlanta History Center, was your exhibition on civil rights in the Jim Crow era and making us aware of the fact that civil rights movement did not begin in the 1950s and culminate in the 1960s. Will you be able to curate in your new role at the Center for Civil and Human Rights? Thank you, first of all, Lois, for the compliment. (laughs) I am always in my happy place when I'm getting to do curatorial work. And I certainly hope that I will be able to continue as a practitioner from time to time. I do recognize that in my new role, I'm very much focused on institution building at this quite young institution. Uh, And so I will be thinking much more about not just my voice as a curator, but also amplifying the voices of a number of talented and brilliant curators um, among us who are members of the team. And also, again, I will be working really hard to bring community voices in, in ways that we might not have experienced quite so much before. Um, I always like to think that exhibitions are not just displays. At their best, they are conversations. At its best, a museum is not just, you know, some object holding, you know, building of, you know, that feels rarefied and special. That's great sometimes, but it should be a town square. It should be a place where people can swap ideas and have some civil dialogue about things that they disagree about and share stories that they would otherwise not know, but for the hearing of folks at a very grassroots level. So my focus is less about amplifying my own voice 
and more about making sure that I'm creating space for lots of voices to be heard and the best of us to be seen and realized. And I want people to think about the National Center for Civil and Human Rights as a community hub and resource and a space where we come together to raise all of our voices and get the good work done. I think they hired the right person for that. Thank you very much. <laughs> Maybe <so too. laughs> I'd like to close with a quote from you in reference to the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. You said, its understanding of the museum as a place of education, inspiration, and ultimately as a catalyst for change is visionary. Dr. Kalinda Lee, thank you for talking with us about your vision for the center. Thank you for having me. This conversation was a pleasure. Dr. Kalinda Lee, the head of programs and exhibitions at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. You can find more information about the center on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Here in Atlanta, we like to think that our city is a second home to the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. In October, the Ailey dancers performed at the annual Elevate Art Festival, and I spoke with artistic director Robert Battle ahead of the Atlanta event. We talked about the group's 44 years performing in Atlanta and about Ailey's ongoing commitment to bring people together, especially during our reckoning with racial injustice over the past seven months. In terms of the social justice part and the racial reckoning that is happening, you know, this company was founded uh, on the brink of the civil rights movement, uh, where there was already a burgeoning civil rights movement sort of afoot, if you will. And Alvin Ailey, as an organization, but also the men, I think saw an opportunity to give voice to the voiceless through dance, through modern dance specifically, that he could have a platform for those stories to be told that weren't being told about the contributions, the struggles, the sense of overcoming adversity that speak to the Black experience on the concert dance stage. So in some ways, we've always been doing this work, but it certainly has even more meaning in this time of the pandemic, uh, in this time of racial reckoning, um, that we continue to make sure that people understand that this company really is about them. This company is about a better world that we want to see. The works that we do really are about the very things that we're dealing with at this time. And it's food for the soul. And it makes you think. It makes you, you think about some of these issues in different ways. Dance has a way of doing that wonderfully and sometimes ambiguously. 
but always intentionally. I thought about the role of the Ailey Dance Theater as teacher and conscience. Yes. When a political rally was scheduled in Tulsa around Juneteenth, many, I think it's fair to say most Americans know nothing about the Tulsa Race Massacre in 1921. Donald Byrd choreographed a work about that horrific event for the Ailey dancers who were performing it right up to the lockdown. Robert, what went through your mind ahead of the news about Tulsa and the plans for a June political rally? You know, I I realized that once again, uh, the company had its finger on the pulse the the relevance of the work that we do not knowing you know when i commissioned donald bird um at that point i knew very little about the tulsa race massacre um and part of that is that a lot of these events were left out of the teachings uh that happened in the school system but the intersection that happened with what we were doing on stage and what was being unearthed, it felt even more meaningful that we were doing the work that that we were doing and that Donald Byrd had the instinct to make a dance about that particular event. And so we got a lot of attention, rightfully so, because we'd already started doing this piece of choreography that that really looked at that issue. So it was really timely. I find myself saying that word a lot when it uh, refers to the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, but it is true. And I think this is the kind of work that Alvin Ailey intended for us to be doing. Of course, doing other works that also entertain, uh, that, that have lightness to it as well. We don't want to say that every work we do is about social justice, but at its core, this organization and the work that we do is about reflecting on those uh, particular issues. And so this was just a wonderful moment where we realize as an organization, the impact that we can have uh, and that we can be a part of the conversation in our own way. Robert Battle is the artistic director for the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. There's more information about their virtual resources and performances on their website, alvinailey.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Interface, a new virtual theater series of works by Atlanta playwrights. We'll also hear about Georgia Ensembles offering a new holiday music video for every day this month. Thanks for listening to member-supported 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.